go on Netflix, you look at Chef's Table, whether it's about pizza, whether it's about other things, it's absolutely incredible how people are sort of journeying to these different locations around the world to go to very specific restaurants and to experience very, very specific local, small batch, artisanal type cuisines. And so that's sort of one extreme. The other extreme is obviously as mass produced as you can imagine. And I think you you nailed it exactly right in the sense that for us to be successful, it's gonna require a mixture of different approaches. But in the end, there, there's always going to be that allure that brings the human spirit back towards those artisanal and farm-to-table type means. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hello and welcome to IBKR Podcasts. I'm Stephen Levine, Senior Market Analyst at Interactive Brokers. I'm your host for today's program. We'll be speaking with Christopher Gennady, Wisdom Tree Europe's Head of Research, about the growing field of bioengineering and its influence it's had on agriculture and the food supply. So welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You know, I understand from the presentation you gave on IBKR's webinars platform, I believe that was in January this year, it was called Enter the Bio Revolution. I found this really fascinating. There were several disciplines, I remember, that you cited as being heavily transformed by biotechnology, and these included health, materials, chemicals, energy, uh, you know, just to name a few. And honestly, I have to tell you, it was really hard to choose, you know, what industry to talk about here. I liked the DNA storage. I thought that was really something, but, you know, maybe we can do that another time. Here, I thought, you know, bioengineered food, right? I mean, that's something, uh, you know, we could really sink our teeth into, you know, sorry, you know. Sorry for the pun there, but you know this is really a subject I think that that really hits daily life. You know, from from plant-based meats to to ice cream, you know, to potential solutions for for world hunger. I mean, if I have that right, so I mean, I guess the the first place to start would be, you know, what is bioengineered food exactly? I mean, is is it the same as genetically modified food? I mean, I heard of that, but is there a difference? And what's the aim of doing this? You know, are what are the what are the benefits in your view? So. I was, I was looking at this, and ultimately, it appeared that depending on the country in which you live, and I'm currently uh, domiciled in the UK, every country sort of has their own structure, their own set of rules as to how these things need to be disclosed. And that's really the key element. It's, it's not really to say, at least at the government level, this is bad or this is good. It's more to say the customer has every right to know exactly what they're buying, what they're eating. Right. And so it looked like in the U.S. there was a recent law, when I say recent, it was uh, 2018, that established the, this idea of bioengineered food. And it seemed like that replaced what was previously in force, which, again, in the U.S. side was uh, or at least tended to be known as genetically modified. The standard defines bioengineered foods as those that contain detectable genetic material that has been modified through certain lab techniques yeah. and cannot be created through conventional breeding or found in nature. So that's really the bottom line. I see. So wholly synthetic. 
something that is genetically wholly synthetic. In, in a way, and, and you, you learn a lot as you sort of dig into the space, you could have wholly synthetic, so that you could basically say food is comprised of molecules. Yep. If we assemble those molecules, however we do it, it's food. Now, another thing you could do is you could take two naturally occurring things yep. and say, I like the resilience and the yield over here, and I like the flavor over here. And you can crossbreed them. So you have two natural things that would have been separate. And what you do in the lab is you sort of bring them together in what you hope is a beneficial manner. No, I mean, it's really it's really interesting. So why would you do this? I mean, what are, what are the benefits of doing this versus just having food? I mean, organically speaking. Really, the, the main thing is people have learned and can ultimately benefit in the sense that there was something called in the late 90s, golden rice. And the, this was an example. If we think of Asia and we think of the amount of rice that's consumed on an annual basis, it's, it's a staggering, staggering number. You have billions of people and it's a key staple to the diet. Yeah. Now, if you're faced with a scenario where a lot of people are having a deficiency in a particular vitamin. So at this point, it was this idea of vitamin A deficiency. If you could basically put into what they're eating every day, vitamin A in a safe manner, and you're basically programming the genetic code of the rice to, instead of being fully natural, to basically synthesize its own version, its own variant of vitamin A, and then ultimately carry that through to the population, you could have the potential to solve a very important issue and provide something that wasn't previously there. And you have to think of this because we, we, we are in a, a zone here where maybe there's 8 billion people on Earth today. In 2050, there could be 10 billion people. Yeah. If we had kept our population at 1 or 2 billion, that's one thing. But the fact of the matter is we're putting an awful lot of people in place. And those people need resources. And this is one way to potentially go about solving those issues. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I find this fascinating. And I'd like to get to that in just, just a minute in terms of providing food for the world's population as it may grow. I mean, the trajectory, yeah, it sounds like uh, we could have 10 billion people by 2050. But before we do that, I'm just, you know, I'm wondering about the companies that operate in this ecosystem of bioengineering for, for agriculture, for food. I mean, I, I suspect there are those like Monsanto or, or Bayer. I, I think, uh, you know, we'll touch on, on that a bit later as well. And then there are other, you know, producers or I guess distributors of bioengineered food. But but what, what are the companies? I mean, I, obviously there are labs involved in this kind of thing. So, you know, are there public companies you can invest in or ETFs? I'm assuming that are thematic that are centered on bioengineering and agriculture? Or? Absolutely. So thematic exchange traded funds, ETFs, this is a huge area of interest. They're getting a lot of focus, even this year, where performance of strategies on the growthier end of the spectrum, where a lot of these types of companies fall, uh, have not been the most high performing in an environment where the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England, all these different central banks are raising interest rates to, to fight inflation. Yeah. Uh, and yet people realize the importance of sustainability, the importance of environmental, social governance, those type of uh, investment norms. 
and they recognize whether it has to do with the population argument, the resources argument, wanting to get into companies like the Beyond Meats and Impossible Foods of the world. Uh, I don't know that anyone specifically says, I want to get into Monsanto or Bayer. These are sort of on the other end of the spectrum, well-established, long-standing some narratives that may not have always been uh, 100% positive going all the way back through history. Yep. But by and large, there are a lot of companies doing very interesting things that really get back to that core question, namely, you know, whether it's this year where we've got droughts in certain areas and people continue to need food in the face of Ukraine maybe being unable to export certain yep. key ingredients. Or uh, in general, the fact that the the climate is changing more broadly, and as a result of that, what you used to grow in certain areas is changing. But if you can do it in a smart way, you might be able to become more self-sufficient food-wise, no matter which country you live in. I've understood that, and I could be completely wrong about this, but I'm, I'm curious because I'm not sure exactly how this is done or whether it fits into the bioengineering scheme. But... There are companies that are printing food. I don't know how that works exactly, but is there a bioengineering process that is involved in the printing, like the 3D printing of food? I'm curious about it. I'm not sure uh, exactly how it works, but uh, I thought I'd throw that question out to you. Uh, maybe. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a crazy one in the sense that, you know, organs are being printed, food yeah. is being printed, <laughs> other things are being printed. I mean, 3D printing is a, is a big thing. And ultimately, the, the global, so you start from basically your foundation and you say, most of what we're dealing with here is plant-based meat. And so the market size globally of plant-based meat in 2021 was a little above 5 billion USD, and it's expected to grow a little under 20% per year. So that compound annual growth rate, ongoing basis, you know, 19.3% all the way up to 2030. And so you've got this growing space. People are interested in plant-based meat. They recognize potential nutritional benefits and the like. And the question is, okay, how do you synthesize it such that it's sort of like it maintains some of the characteristics that people have come to know and love about the more longstanding and regular, for lack of a better term, meat that we've uh, become familiar with. And so with with 3D printing, you're basically taking certain parts of the molecular structure, certain key ingredients, and you're adding them to the substrate in in a way that is able to transpire and you're doing it in the right order. And the, the reason you do it is you're getting a certain texture, a certain character, a certain uh, flavor to the meat yeah. by layering the ingredients in that uh, particular way. So it's a very interesting way to get to that end goal of something that's sort of like what they call it flexitarians have become used to. They may not be trying to appeal to the vegan. Right. Uh, the full vegan diet, but they, you know, want people who, you know, love that good old fashioned hamburger uh, to they, they want those people to basically feel like there's no difference. Right, right. You, you touched on it earlier, the ESG importance or the increasing awareness of those factors that underlie the environment, social governance and all those factors that fall beneath there. I know that the U.N. has all these sustainable development goals. I think there's like 17 of them. 
that are the backbone or the blueprint for everything that's ESG, it seems. And one of them is, one of their goals is to achieve zero hunger throughout the world. I mean, a lot of them are, are very ideal in nature, obviously. They want to uh, have no poverty in the world. Uh, so as the population rises, like you pointed out, something like 8 billion today, a little over 8 billion. Uh, maybe by 2050, we have 10 billion. And so, yes, people are, are going to need to be fed and they're going to need the resources. It looks like bioengineering can produce more foods and perhaps give it those supplements or vitamins uh, that would be healthy for people if it's indeed healthy, right? So, but my questions about this are how, even if we produce more food, it seems that we've got a lot of countries today, you also mentioned Ukraine and exports, say constraints of the agriculture that it uh, exports like wheat. But there's also those countries that uh, according to uh, a report, I believe it was the uh, Global Report on Food Crises, there are a list, a lo pretty long list of countries that they categorize as being in crisis or worse condition. Countries like Democratic Republic of Congo or Afghanistan. There are others like, I suppose, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Yemen. So even if we can produce more food supply, these countries are, seem to be typically, they're, they're beset by, by internal conflicts, by violence, by disease, by economic shocks. And if we can't get food to them today, how do we get food to them in the future? Or uh, are they in some ways going to be self-sustaining in some political or regulatory capacity that uh, enables them to be self-sustaining by producing it on their own. I, I'm not sure how that works, but is there, a, is there any research or, or strategy that's out there that tackles these particular hurdles? These are essentially the biggest hurdles uh, on, on <laughs> Earth. World, yeah. world peace, world, uh, yeah. you know, uh, hunger, all, all the rest. But, I mean, uh, it, it's interesting in the sense that I've, I've the people I to at least try to follow and feel like when I do follow them, I, I've learned something. Uh, when, when they talk about energy, one of the things they say is it's, it's not going to be just wind power. It's not going to be just solar power. It's going to be the full mix. We have to take advantage of everything we've learned and recognize that if we limit ourselves and we only use one kind of energy, we're, we're probably not going to get to where we need to go. We need to recognize there's a benefit to all sources of energy and one of the things that we could do in food is we could recognize there's a benefit from all sources of food. Um, I was reading up on just a little bit of the history and recognized that there was a time that in various places of the U.S. it would have been considered crazy. Maybe it was 50, 60, 70 years ago to to have the idea of consuming raw fish, what we know of as sushi. Right. Uh, sushi was, was not popular. It, it was seen as kind of a weird thing, a taboo, and you wouldn't do it. Yeah. But today, taste preferences have changed, and fish in all of its various forms is a key and a very important food source. And something to be a little bit provocative here for the listeners, um, <laughs> about 2 billion people today consume the highly protein-intensive insects as part of their diet, whether it's grasshoppers, beetles, all sorts of different things. Again, it depends on where you are. I grew up in Connecticut in the U.S., so insects being eaten in Connecticut, couldn't, couldn't imagine it. 
based on my childhood, but yeah. had I grown up in <laughs> Thailand or parts of Mexico, it would have been a delicacy. It would have been totally normal. And like I said, there's there's a lot of protein, so you don't want to write anything off or say it would be impossible or say that it would never happen because we have a very real issue. Yes. And the other thing I would say is think of India as an example. You didn't necessarily list it next to some of those other countries, but India has a huge population. They have some very, very poor regions, even if those are next to some very, very rich regions. And about 40% of their food supply spoils. So one of the things that you can do, you can think of different sources of food. You could think of more or innovative production methods and you can think of what about the food that you're already producing actually being able to get where it needs to go without spoiling. And, and I had read yeah. in the article, I'm, I can't verify if it's true, but if India did not have any spoilage, they would actually produce enough food for their population, which is really saying something. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, there are all sorts of constraints and it's a very delicate system, supply chains, et cetera, when it comes to food. I mean, if you talk about insects, I think that, I mean, that's that's a, a very fascinating area. I know that there are certain shops, I think, that even they've been uh, given some time on television to talk about their chocolate-covered insects, and there's a whole array of, of these things that seems that people find protein benefit from. I'm not sure. I don't think that I'll eat them, but then there are foods that I just don't eat that most people eat. So, you know, uh, I think it comes down to taste ultimately. But then there's also just, you know, safety in general. So I'd really like to touch on the safety aspect of it because, you know, I, I, f I see that the, the U.S. regulators for agriculture, the FDA, the EPA, the USDA, I mean, they've all come out, I believe, and, and said that there's no harm, at least that we, you know, that they can detect from any kind of bioengineered foods. But they haven't always, I suppose, been the most reliable when it comes to product safety. You can think of cigarettes, for example, and cigarettes were allowed to have their own research by their own internal doctors. If they were doctors, I'm not sure. Likely they were, but they would come out in journals and, and on television and in magazines. I guess not television just yet. I mean, say the 30s or 40s or maybe on radio. And they would tout how their cigarettes were like the best cigarettes in the world. I mean, it wasn't, I think they were introduced in like the, I don't know, the 19th century, but it wasn't until like 64 or 65 that the FDA finally came out with some kind of label or, or, or requirement for a label, or I think the federal government said, hey, you know, we've got to put labels on these after the Surgeon General warned that they caused cancer, like they caused throat cancer, they caused lung cancer, they, they caused chronic bronchitis. But yet this caution label was just cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. So I'm thinking, you know, that it's some kind of lobbying effort, you know, to, to keep federal laws at bay. So I'm assuming that the bioengineering companies would be in that same camp, but I could be wrong. I mean, it could be completely safe, but there's question marks around that. I'd love to get your insights into, you know, if you think that at some point in time, these, these could be something that could be hazardous. Uh, I think it's speculation, but I'd love to get your thoughts. It's, it's one of those things where if, if we're honest about it, when the numbers get big enough and you basically say if a billion people took an Advil or a Tylenol 
could we guarantee that not one person out of those billion people would have a unique allergic reaction of some sort? Of course, we, we could never guarantee. So yeah. there, there can absolutely be issues with almost anything. And hu- human progress and human science has been characterized by all sorts of beliefs. Uh, in the past, you cited cigarettes as one. There was there was a time historically where if you were sick, uh, they would actually drain your blood to a, yeah, a certain yeah, degree. So, that's right. you know, if, if we if we basically let our knowledge just uh, stagnate, we'd, uh, you know, be in a very different world. But what what we have to at least try to believe is at least I think, uh, you know, you can take sort of the more optimistic read and you can say, uh, these government agencies and scientists and companies generally, we know they want to make money. I mean, we, we can never discount that. I'm sure money was a key motivation. And like you said, lobbying uh, is something that I think it affects uh, basically every industry. Any yeah. industry with significant profits probably has some lobbying going on. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a benefit in the sense that if you could increase food production, if you could make the ingredients that are available to you at the supermarket healthier and better and potentially more plentiful, maybe it helps a bit with the inflation, maybe it helps a bit with the nutrition, maybe it helps with general health. I I don't think not doing anything is really a good other option, because if you don't progress down this path and learn what you could learn and develop what you can develop... Uh, then you just keep everything the same. But there are already issues with keeping everything the same. Maybe we don't necessarily have enough supply. Maybe certain things are too expensive. Maybe uh, certain regions don't have access uh, to the same uh, nutritional benefits that other regions have. And so at least if you try these techniques, you have a chance of making the pie bigger for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there seems to be success so far. I mean, at least people don't seem to be completely deterred by something being bioengineered in terms of food. I can't tell you how many people would share with me, you know, how it it seems so unlikely that grapes would be so big in the grocery store, for example, or blueberries. They just seem to be genetically modified, at least according to their perception. And yet they're fine with it. I mean, they eat it. Whether they are or not, the perception is there and they still eat it. So I think that that's very interesting and that there's a, a sort of open-mindedness about it, especially with the printing of the food. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there seems to be a, an audience for it. The USDA did come out with some kind of disclosure and maybe it's for that reason about you know one person or that small fraction of, of the population that end up having some kind of reaction towards the bioengineered food. Is that, was, was that what's behind this disclosure? that the USD requires manufacturers, importers, retailers, you know, to ensure that these bioengineered foods are appropriately labeled? Is that the rationale behind that? In, in, In our view, it ultimately comes down to the fact that you're getting these products in some cases from countries all over the world. And it's of the utmost importance that you can, as a consumer, walk into the grocery store and have at least a modicum of confidence that you know what it is you're putting in your shopping cart, putting in your car, putting on your family's table uh, at the end of the day. And so this disclosure, just so people can make the informed choice, is is never a bad thing. Uh, I, don't, I don't think disclosure in and of itself means, because the fact that it's on the shelf means 
legally uh, it is it is allowed to be there and it passed whatever the USDA and other agencies might have deemed appropriate tests to pass. So mm. in, in the end, you know, it's almost that side by side, take the Pepsi challenge. Uh, <laughs> on the one right. side, you have the organic, no modification. On the other side, you have uh, the other option. Yeah. And o- over time, uh, people are going to make the choice that works for them. Absolutely. And just for our listeners, the Pepsi challenge, I remember this you know, as a blind taste test that they would put an unlabeled Dixie cup of Pepsi and another of Coca-Cola. And you didn't know which was which, but they had you taste it. And then you said which one you liked better. And I think those Pepsi commercials, they would say, uh, you know, nine out of eight out of 10 people or nine out of 10 people preferred the taste of Pepsi or the taste of Coca-Cola. But this is all very, very much nostalgia. And, and it does segue actually into this next point I wanted to bring up. In terms of nostalgia, traditional industries seem to give way to these new advanced forms of products, right? So the dairy industry, for example, we saw uh, Borden go out of business, I believe. They filed for bankruptcy. So did Dean Foods, makers of traditional cow milk or, you know, dairy, uh, traditional dairy. And a great deal of people seem to be uh, very much more inclined towards things like almond milk or or soy milk or other types of plant-based milks. It really seemed to have destroyed the dairy farms, but there might have been other issues there as well. But there have to be other producers of organic food, of natural foods, that will suffer in some ways or be damaged because of the rise of bioengineered foods. For example, we talked about the label for bioengineered ingredients. Well, you know, I picked up a, a carton of, of Friendly's ice cream. You know, I was I was also being nostalgic, right? I, I remember Friendly's, you know, growing up in New England, and I really thought, okay, I feel like I'm just going to buy a carton of Friendly's ice cream, and then I, you know, on the way to the register, I noticed that it had that label. It said, this product contains a bioengineered ingredient. And it, I, got, I was taken aback a bit. I, was, I thought, what could that possibly be? So I did look it up what this bioengineered ingredient was, and I understand it has something to do with manufacturing the flavor from, uh, that you would, you would otherwise get from uh, vanilla beans. And these vanilla beans are produced in small farms, I understand, in, in the rainforest. So the decision for whoever owns Friendly is to make this bioengineered ingredient, to produce it in a lab, means they're not getting it from those farmers anymore. So what does bioengineering do to traditional agriculture? I mean, in general, is there a place for it still? I mean, are people making decisions to do it in the lab and not get it from small farms? Does it put small farms out of business? How, how does that work? It's, it's an interesting question. I think it goes to the complexity of all the decision making and the supply chains because whether you think of it in terms of vanilla, as is the case of this example, uh, other people would read similar articles that would have to do with cocoa, yep. uh, which is another thing that needs to be produced. And we're at a point where if we go back to some of our previous logic in the sense that we're getting towards 8 billion people, then down the line in the near future, we have 10 billion people. What's going to happen is the sort of small farm approach in the rainforest, one option would be the whole rainforest just becomes vanilla and cocoa type production, which is not a good option because we need the rainforest and that's important. Yeah. Or 
you basically use the artisanal version of vanilla or cocoa or whatever the ingredient might be uh, in certain applications. And then in other applications, it's deemed that you can do almost just as well with sort of a lab cultured, lab produced version. And the benefit is maybe at the end, more people have access to the goodness that people have come to know as vanilla or chocolate flavoring. So it may be a case where if all the people who want the product are to get it, we cannot 100% rely solely on the more artisanal and traditional approaches. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like you said, uh, I think at the beginning of this, there's a mix of approaches and processes that we would want to employ and not find any one of them in a concentrated way, like energy, for example. But that brings me to the concentration of these as well. So it's one observation that I read about, and I'm not you know, quite sure how this goes exactly, but I understand that potato famine, right, in Ireland, right, I believe that was in the 19th century, that largely the crop was wiped out because there wasn't a lot of genetic diversity. It was basically a single strain of type of crop that a pest was um, attracted to and, and wiped the whole thing out. And so what I understand is that diversity in terms of the genetics is really important. But if you're bioengineering something that's like, say, the, the, the BT corn, if it's 80% the same genetics and you get some kind of pest in there that is not deterred by it, or you have somebody who has nefarious purposes and wants to destroy it with some kind of uh, weapon, I suppose that's possible. Is there vulnerabilities that are being taken to account when producing something so concentrated in terms of their genetics? It's, it's a good point. And we just saw that human, the human race itself is vulnerable in the sense that, you know, a, a virus comes. Uh, and it could be the story could be any virus. Uh, it happened to be the COVID-19, the unique strain that we saw emerge yeah. late 2019 or early 2020. And it changed life as we know it for basically two years. So you sit there and you say, wow, a small microorganism that comes from somewhere. I don't know where it came from, but it comes from somewhere out of nowhere. Boom. We're changing the way we do things for two years. And so it goes to show that there there are no guarantees. Even if we did not genetically, I mean, obviously the Irish potato famine, very well-known piece of history. Uh, I don't don't believe they were at least, maybe, maybe there was crop husbandry and they were trying to breed different things. So maybe a bit of that was going on, but it certainly wasn't a lab to the extent that a uh, buyer and Monsanto would be using. Yeah. And yet still there was a famine, there was an issue. And so we, we could never sit back and say, there's never going to be a famine. There's never going to be an issue. Uh, you hope that people have learned from historical examples like that. And so you hope that at least if something happens, it doesn't repeat uh, from a prior instance. But in the end, uh, there may not be a way to say, Uh, alleviate the risk fully or mitigate the risk fully of these types of events from happening. But uh, you you do your best 
and you whether it's pests, whether it's viruses, whether it's you know climate or or water related uh, characteristics to the crop, you make it robust as possible, and in the end, uh, you hope that you know the nefarious actors are are kept at bay. But it's absolutely true that even today. Yeah. People with the, the right knowledge, the right know-how, the right ingredients in their garage could make viruses. Uh, you don't know what those viruses would do, if they would work, if they would be effective. But many documentaries have already been done to show that the biological capability is already far along in the hands of just about anyone. Yeah. And we've come a long way, haven't we? I mean, from the days uh, I can imagine in the very beginnings when people were just finding foods that were uh, edible and that didn't kill them. I mean, th that must have been quite a trial and error type of process to have to undergo. I mean, what foods would sustain us? And we've come quite a long way from that point to the point where we can actually create those foods now. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. But where exactly do you see this industry going, say, over in the next five to 10 years? It's, it's fascinating in the sense that what seems to get the eyeballs and the attention today is not we're going to mass produce, even if many people are eating mass produced, whatever you name the ingredient, uh, there's almost a romanticization of the small producers, the farm to table, you, you go on Netflix, you look at chef's table, whether it's about pizza, whether it's about other things. It's absolutely incredible how people are sort of journeying to these different locations around the world to go to very specific restaurants yeah. and to experience very, very specific local small batch artisanal type cuisines. And so that's sort of one extreme. The other extreme is obviously as mass produced as you can imagine. And I think you, you nailed it exactly right in the sense that for us to be successful, it's going to require a mixture of different approaches. But in the end, there, there's always going to be that allure that brings the human spirit back towards those artisanal and farm-to-table type means. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating journey as we, as we go forward. And again, there are ETFs out there, other uh, stocks for companies that are aligned with this industry, seem to be making great uh, strides in the industry. And yeah, I really appreciate your time for doing this. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Listeners can read more market commentary, analysis, and insights from Wisdom Tree Europe at IBKR's Traders Insight at tradersinsight.news. They've got lots of fascinating articles there that delve into a wide range of information on exchange-traded products from commodities and FX to equities, fixed income, and cryptocurrencies, and more. You can also catch their webinars at ibkrwebinars.com. They cover a number of mega-trend issues like climate change and the energy transition. You can also hear much more on the topic discussed today in Chris's great presentation, Enter the Bio-Revolution. And until next time, I'm Stephen Levine with Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about Interactive Brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com.
The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice. Any discussion or mention of an ETF is not to be construed as recommendation, promotion, or solicitation. All investors should review and consider associated investment risks, charges, and expenses of the investment company or fund prior to investing. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at IVKR.com.